I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello, green-fingered book lovers. I'm Helen Griffin, the book publishing manager at the RHS, which basically means I have the great honour of overseeing some of the best releases in the gardening literary world. I get to pour over many pages of beautiful gardens, of grow-your-own, ornamental horticulture, of houseplant care and of groundbreaking new science. And today I'm here to chat with you about the best gardening books of the year, which are the perfect things, in my opinion, to curl up with on frosty winter nights. Joining me with their favourite books is Guy Barter, RHS Chief Horticulturalist, podcast presenter, author of many books, including this year's RHS Garden Almanac. Hello, Guy. Hello, Helen. Fiona Davison is also with us. She's Head of Libraries and Exhibitions at the RHS and author of the wonderful new book, An Almost Impossible Thing, The Radical Lives of Britain's Pioneering Women Gardeners. Hello, Fiona. Hello, Helen. And last but certainly not least, Arthur Parkinson is also here to chat with us. Arthur is the author of The Pottery Gardener, The Flower Yard, and most recently, Planting a Paradise. He also co-presents the podcast Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with Sarah Raven. Welcome, Arthur. Hello, Helen. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS for the annual book special with me, Helen Griffin. So before we get to your top picks, I wanted to take a moment to zoom out and chat about the landscape of the gardening book world. My job revolves around making RHS gardening books, so I need to know what gardeners want and who are the trusted and upcoming new authors and trends. So what can we say about the gardening market today? Well, last year in the UK, we bought around 600,000 new gardening books. The value of the book market is around £7.5 million a year, although last year was an exceptional year with £9 million worth of gardening books sold. This year, the sales are a bit down. I think the kind of overhang of COVID has, has worn off, but the number of new books hasn't slowed. Accompanying your new books are about 350 other new books this year, which sounds a lovely lot, but unfortunately... A third of those haven't sold more than 50 copies. Some books enjoy a lot of attention, such as Alice Vincent's Why Women Grow, which has sold 12,500 copies in just eight months. And that's the bestseller this year so far. But Monty Don's brand new The Gardening Book, which has only been on sale for 28 days, has already sold 10,000 copies, so it's catching up fast. 
But away from celebrity gardeners, some themes we see again and again with the new releases. What do you think are some of the thematic trends for this year? Well, I think um, a lot of books seem to be about people's gardening journey in which they discover themselves and they discover gardening and they discover nature and wildlife. And uh, that's very refreshing for me because I sort of went through that journey decades ago and it's interesting to see what a new take and what fresh generations find to infuse about and that inspires them. Hmm. What about you, Fiona? I, I agree. I think there's a lot of this kind of personal, personalised take on what gardening means to people and a lot of really good writing on that. And I think that's a, a little bit of a hangover and a long shadow of COVID. Lots of people went inwards, <laughs> you know, in terms of reflecting a lot about gardening and what it meant to them and what their garden meant to them. And we're seeing, you know, the overhang of that. I think the other thing that is really strong in the more kind of practical how-to books is a hunger to think about sustainable gardening and thinking about how you can garden in a way that kind of supports wildlife and is kind of responsive to climate change. So I think that's a big trend which is here to stay. Yeah, one of the standout books for the RHS this year has been Tom Massey's Resilience Garden, which he brought to life the garden that he plans in it at Hampton Court. Mm. And if you look in the book, there's a QR code and he'll do a tour of that garden, you know, online if you if you scan the QR code. Um, so he kind of brought that idea to life and then made it live on in a very sustainable way. What about you, Arthur? Well, I love that book. I was sent that book looking enough and I remember flicking through the pages and just thinking, yes, well done, Tom, you've... You've written a book that is so helpful, particularly for people who are buying new build housing, when you've got that completely blank canvas. And I think it's important to remember that more and more people are living in cities now than ever before. And, you know, you're literally buying quite often a, a box with a compacted ground surface within the middle of. So I think I've become more aware of that having, you know, when I was first writing, I was writing about a job and then I was writing about my gardening life at home and both those situations were quite lucky really compared to what a lot of people inherit as their first garden so I loved the fact that Tom was talking about water butts I mean I am very guilty of writing several container books and not mentioning much about watering and you know we're all feeling the effects of climate change more and more so they're shifting aren't they and I think that the cookbook market actually is starting to blend into the garden book more and more you're wanting personal introductions and then as many recipes as you can get for different situations. It's very hard to do because when you're writing from a personal perspective, you've only got one garden. I'm lucky enough to have always had a sunny garden, not a shady garden. So, of course, what happens? You get reviews saying, well, you've not given me anything for shade. Mm. So it's the balance, isn't it, of being practical, personal and as informative as you can be. I've asked you all to submit your top picks for 2023 and they cover many of the important categories. We've got history books, books of seasonal grow your own and a few category killers on houseplants, cut flowers, winter gardens and yes, even murder. To start, let's do history. Fiona, as a historian, I'm not in the least surprised that one of your picks is history related. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I chose Stephen Parker's new book, which is called England's Gardens and Modern History. And 
it's a doll in Kindersley's box is beautifully illustrated. It looks very nice, lots of really lovely photographs. But what he, um, Stephen is a, he's a lecturer in garden history at Cardiff University. He's incredibly knowledgeable, but he's also an absolute inveterate garden visitor. If you follow him on social media, he's always, you know, lost in a hedge somewhere, visiting somewhere. And he puts these beautiful photographs up of gardens he's visited. And he does he does the big hitters in this book. There's Sissinghurst and all of these, you know, big gardens that you would expect to see. But there are a few kind of unusual gardens I hadn't come across, which I, I now have on my hit list. The Cambridge Central Mosque Garden, for example. But what he also does, he does a very neat and comprehensive potted garden history through this book so that when you go to these gardens, you kind of can put some context to the garden and, you know, where it came from, because I think one of the trends in garden history is to be more aware of the people behind the gardens and not just look at them as static, kind of almost bits of decorative art. They're not. They're products of people and place and time and economics and power and, you know, all kinds of really juicy, interesting stuff. So it's a great Christmas present. I'm not mm, dropping any that. hints, but great Christmas present for anyone, you know, who likes to visit a garden but get a little bit more out of it. Very good. It's lovely to plan your your future visits, isn't it, in the winter? So a great book for winter. We also caught up earlier with Matt Pottage, Wisley's curator, who's been raving about a book by Alan Titchmarsh on the evolution of an historic garden. So here's Matt with his favourite. The first book I'd like to talk about is Chatsworth, The Gardens and the People Who Made Them. And this book is by Alan Titchmarsh. This is new out this year. And what really made me look twice at this book and think, wow, this is quite something, is I do have a big affection for Chatsworth. I am from Yorkshire. It's a garden that I know very well. But regardless of that, I think Chatsworth is such a significant landscape. There's so many big names, you know, from Joseph Paxton to more recently Tom Stuart Smith, who have, who have made their mark on it. And this is a beautiful book and collation of the stories, the changes. And I think, you know, this could be aimed at really passionate garden lovers, but also just somebody who has a, an affection for the English landscape, gardens or countryside, or even, you know, the beautiful backdrops of all the, the statues, the architecture, the orangeries, the house. And of course, it's, you know, it's Alan Titchmarsh, one of the great gardening names of the industry. And he's someone I grew up watching on Gardener's World as a kid who very much inspired me. So, you know, th those combinations and to have uh, basically an update of where Chatsworth is at now. So it's not all about just looking back, but very, very up to date with those recent changes. It's a beautiful read. I've not read Chatsworth yet, but I'm adding it to the list. Have you had a chance to read it yet? No, I'm afraid I haven't read it. I mean, yeah, I love deep dive into a particular garden. And, and obviously someone like Alan Titchmarsh, who has kind of such a gardening pedigree, his take on that garden is going to be interesting. And amazing Jonathan Buckley pictures as well. Mm. So it's a lovely package. Yeah, I mean, I, I've visited Chatsworth since I was little, more for chickens than camellias. But this book is another take on the garden, bringing it up to date from the book 
that Deborah Devonshire did actually while she was Duchess of Devonshire. And it was wonderful to see Jonathan during the time he was spending at Chatsworth with his drone, which I can tell you was very hard for him to do because you have to get a lot of security passes to get a drone above the house. So it's wonderful to see these beautiful views of the place, which you, of course, don't get being a land dweller normally when you visit. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading this book, which I wasn't aware of really until Matt mentioned it, because, of course, Alan started off in the old tradition of head gardeners and municipal gardeners. So these things that are a history now in many other places are within Alan's living experience. I'm sure he'll bring a particular insight to it. And he, he writes very, very well as well. Of course, he's the most wonderful writer. And in general, what does the home gardener learn from delving into our green-fingered past? I think that the thing that an everyday gardener would get out of it is an awareness that gardening isn't static. We get a bit fixated sometimes, I think, in gardening on the right way and there's, as, as if it's kind of a monolithic truth that has come down to us, when in fact there have been many different ways of gardening and there will be in future different ways again. Change is just part of it. It's a constantly evolving, changing practice art, craft and science. So I think to just the awareness of how much things have changed. In fact, there must must have been lots of huge controversies as landscapes swept away the parterres and parterres were filled up with Victorian gaudy things and then um, William Robinson came along and stirred it all up. And without the perspective of history, it's hard to, to measure what the kind of things that are going on now with naturalistic gardening. I'm definitely going to have to visit the library, Fiona, and check out some <laughs> of these history books. Obligatory. And Guy and Arthur, I'm not leaving you hanging. Guy, you have submitted two Grow Your Own books this year as your favourites. Let's start with Botany of the Kitchen Garden by Helena Dove. Please, can you describe what it's about? Well, this is a really most interesting book. It's a slim volume, 162 pages, and it goes into every crop you can think of, from carrots to pineapples. And um, it goes into a bit of their history, the way they grow, their structure, Various facets, like carrots, how they developed from white things that were hardly worth eating into wondrous purple things that must have been very good for you, and then on to yellow carrots and now orange carrots. And, of course, it's gone through full circle now where people want to grow different coloured carrots, which is a, a rather wonderful thing. Because Helena works at Kew, everything's seen through a prism of botany, which I think is quite interesting. I'm, I always see things through a prism of plant physiology, but she drags it all together in a really rather masterful way. So, full of fascinating facts, Guy, what's one thing you learnt that you never thought you'd learn from this book? Well, take pineapples, for instance. In suburban Surrey, we don't grow a lot of pineapples, so it's very interesting to, to read about them. But I didn't realise that they have a particular form of photosynthesis called CAM, which is a highly inefficient form of photosynthesis, but it's also a very drought-resistant one. So the pineapple is brilliantly adapted to withstand drought. That's not going to help us, even under climate change in Surrey, but it's a nice fact to mull over. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And how does that relate to your second pick, which is Rekka's Kitchen Garden? Well, my second pick is completely different. It's written by Rekka, Rekka Mystery, who is quite new to gardening. And what she did was she turned her love of her allotment and growing things to eat, and indeed cooking, into a really engaging book. 
and she approaches things from a new look. Now, I've written lots of vegetable growing books and they follow a well-known formula. First of all, you have an introduction where you baffle people about things like rotation and fertiliser. Then you go through the crops one by one and at the end um, you put everybody off by talking about the pests and diseases. What Wrecker does is that she looks at everything month by month. Mm. Um, so if you want to grow tomatoes, it's no good expecting to find a chapter on tomatoes. Somewhere in July, there'll be a bit about tomatoes. So you have to leap about the book for a practical purpose. Mm. But it's an interesting when I think you know, looking at her success, it's one that en engages a new generation of people who are perhaps put off by the traditional way that I've been raised in. And if you wanted to get more insight into Wrecker's growing, you could, you could watch any of her reels on Instagram because she's, she, I mean, th I think she's got hundreds of thousands of followers there. Yes, she's a social media star in a very big way, yes. Arthur, can you tell us about one of your picks, A Year Full of Veg, by your podcast's lovely co-host, Sarah Raven? Yeah, so this is Sarah's second book on, on vegetable growing and... I'm going to describe this as Sarah's vegetable garden orgy of sexiness. It's what the pages will show you is what every British supermarket should be showcasing, but of course we don't get it, sadly. And anyone who is reliant on a supermarket will know how the salad section has been very up and down in its sourcing due to various issues. So even for someone like me who has not been interested in vegetable growing, this has wet my appetite for veg, even if it's little bits, so my garden now contains more and more herbs. And the wonderful thing that Sarah does, and having known her personally for a long time, I think she's been really good with this book in not allowing the flowers to outshine the vegetables, but instead she's really driven home the importance of companion planting. And almost all the flowers she chooses to companion plant, she does honestly eat. So, you know, whether it's dahlias or marigolds, they're all scattered through salads. And the great thing is Sarah's use of space, even though she's got a large garden compared to most of us, she really does pack it in. So as soon as something's over, she's bringing something out of the greenhouse, the polytunnel, the cold frame to slot in. So I know now while we're talking, the greenhouse at Perch Hill is full of hardy winter mustards and salads, mizunas, which will see you through the entire winter season. And it's a wonderful, helpful guide. I've, I've given this book to my dad, who's just started vegetable gardening. He's taken on my grandma's garden, which always had veg in it, you know, purple sprouting, leeks, tomatoes. And it's, it's full of traditional advice, but also modern advice, which is, you know, organic gardening for encouraging as many birds as you can into the plot so it doesn't neglect things like hedges, which, of course, act as windbreaks. It's all very, very practical and beautiful, and I love it, actually. And with Jonathan Buckley pictures, it's beautiful to yeah. see. Yeah, I was about to He's say that. He's out there in all weathers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, was, I was about to say that. Yes. That's the kind of distinguishing feature of this book. I mean, mm. quite often, vegetable gardening books are quite worthy but visually dull. You know, it's yep. very kind of here's a diagram of you know, <laughs> and here's a here's a quite uninspiring picture of a of a radish. But this is is sumptuous and yeah. for the kind of, you know, aspirational the only thing I worry about this is expectation management, is you kind of, you know, the gap between my vegetable plot and this is so huge. But it it is very it is very inspiring and beautiful and luscious. So, Arthur, with your own book, Planting a Paradise, mm. you take all your own photos. Yes. Um, and your 
your book, did it take the same kind of year-round approach, month-by-month approach? They, they wanted it to, but to be honest, I, I find it very hard to write like that because every year is, is becoming so different. Obviously, I know in the autumn I'm going to be planting tulips, but the fact is I may not be planting those tulips till January and I don't like lying. So it became just a, a marzipan thing of just breaking the year up into seasons and putting as much as I could think of within those seasons, which probably isn't that helpful, but it's an honest, an honest account. I think that's a really important point about the changing climate and the unpredictability of the mm. scenes, that kind of gardening calendar approach of it's January, I must be doing X, or it's March, I must well, be doing Y. It's That's out of the window. You've mm. hit upon the essential truth of writing a gardening book, and that is it's important not to say months because you have to because some people live in Scotland, some people yes. live in Sussex. Yes. So avoid it entirely. A few people live in America, so you always say spring. Yes. Summer, Whenever that may be. Winter. But yes. even even the you know even the seasons concept yeah. of you know mm. they're different, and Our I wonder whether what we should now. be pointing people to is signs to look for when it's the right time to put your tulips in. Signs to look for when you mm. should be. You know, that's, that's, yeah, out. I mean, that's particularly important in spring. So if you read old books, it says sow in April. Well, nowadays you can quite easily sow in February. Yeah. It's yeah. just the way the climate's going. And now for what I'm calling the wildcard choices, let's get to your final picks. First up, I'm turning back to Matt Pottage. Another favourite from this year is Not Another Jungle, and this is by Tony LeBritton. The front of the cover confidently says, comprehensive care for extraordinary houseplants. And I must say, what really drew me to this was, first of all, following Tony LeBritton on Instagram and seeing the massively exciting range of houseplants there. Really exciting aroids. So, Aroids have been quite trendy in the houseplant world for a while now, but seeing cultivars, selections, many of them variegated that I'd never, ever seen before, and also growing them really well. It's very clear that Tony is a very talented grower as well as a writer. A thing that stood out for me in it is the very specific care guides. There's a whole myth-busting section on things that get repeated lots in houseplant books, and, you know, Tony hasn't been afraid to really interrogate and challenge some of those myths. But it's really aimed at someone who would be very into their houseplants. I know I certainly learned a few things about managing uh, terrariums. It's a, it's a really good read, and I think uh, there's a lot to be, to be learned from it. I did love this book by Tony LeBritton, and I particularly like the myth-busting. Every so often people will say, oh, houseplants, they purify the air, don't they? Mm. Well, no, they don't, actually. So it's nice to see someone having the courage to take on the received opinion, even though it's not a terribly popular one. Bravo. And, of course, if you are in the Kent area and you do like houseplants, the RHS plant space at Blue Water is a perfect place to go. Full of, of houseplants and houseplant books and pots and, and everything you would need. Arthur, you've chosen a book that's also about bringing plants indoors, this time perennials and woody plants in the form of cut flowers. What is so special about Rachel Siegfried's Cut Flower Source book? Well, I think the wonderful thing about this book is it's bringing back a lot of the traditional stalwarts of the cottage garden. And I think it's important to not just think about cut flowers as rose and something that's separate from the garden. You know, what I love about this book is I flicked through it and I thought... 
There's so many recipes I could give anybody setting up a new garden that would be full of flowers throughout the year, full of pollinators and, huge bonus, a harvest of flowers for the garden. And I think what Rachel's really committed herself to are the hardy perennials, which have been outshone lately by the dahlias and the annuals, which, of course, a lot of us love to grow, I being one of them. But increasingly, I want a backbone of perennials. And there's all sorts in here, from achilleas to iris to echinacea. doesn't matter what your soil might be. She's also gone into the shrubs, which I think is really helpful. One of the first things I would tell anyone to do is plant a hedge. But don't just plant privet. You might as well have a hedge of gorgeous things that every couple of months you can forage to have as foliage for that one vase in your kitchen table. It's a beautiful book and it's also an honest book. She's just stuck to what she grows in her flower fields. And it's a wonderful book for the beginner gardener or someone who maybe has got an allotment and they want to grow cut flowers or someone who's lucky enough to have maybe bought a field and they've decided to turn it into a flower meadow. And I thought the wonderful photography was very inspirational. Yes. It would really inspire you to have a go and to grow a range mm. of things. Yeah, so many new and exciting things. You know, it's it's made me fall back in love with Alchemilla Mollis which I never really noticed before. But I want more of the acid green in my garden than ever before, thanks to this book. Lovely. And that brings us to Guy's final pick. Can you tell us about RHS Winter Garden by Naomi Slade, please? Well, Naomi Slade has written a book about gardens in winter. And as a person who tends to put the garden to bed in winter and try and avoid it and go on to something else, it's been quite a revelation. And not least because in my profession, I have to generate stuff about gardens in winter and it's really difficult because <laughs> um, a garden in winter in southern England is mostly mud. But Naomi has very cunningly um, managed to pick out all the good points. And uh, the one that particularly impressed me, that I'd never really thought of, was um, visiting gardens in winter. You can actually see their bones and their structure. I think that's a take-home point. And there's all sorts of things picking out the beauty of the garden in the winter. Um, you have to sort of clamp down on those thoughts of drizzle and mud. Um, because if you pick your moment and get out early enough, there's some wonderful things to see. Yeah, you can see the frost before it melts. Exactly. And finally, Fiona, let's get into murder. What's your final pick? Well, I was inspired to kind of pick this book up and, and have a good look at it when it came through because we'd had Dr Mark Spencer, the forensic botanist, come to the library to do one of our evening talks at the Lindley Library. And it was a really gruesome, not for the faint-hearted talk, where he's a botanist who gets sent to crime scenes to help work out how long the body has been there by the pollen and the seeds. So I was kind of in the mood and so I picked up this book which is called Gardening Can Be Murder by Marta McDowell who's an American author and what she's done is she's gone through just general crime and murder literature and spotted when either gardens have been used as a setting which happens you know, frequently because that kind of contrast between a beautiful garden which is associated with peace and calm and then, you know, Nasty Deeds in the Shrubbery is, you know, a very ripe one for, for authors. But also, surprisingly, how often garden plants or garden plant collecting is a motive for murder. That happens a lot as well. And how often big crime authors were actually keen gardeners. So, you know, Agatha Christie was a very keen gardener and she references poisonous plants quite a lot in her murder mysteries. The frustrating thing about... I, I know why she's done it. She, she doesn't want to have spoilers. So, you know, when she's praising these books, she's she's very careful not to tell you who did what to whom. 
but that does make the praises a little bit bland. But it did point me to some books I'd never heard of, which I, I now will seek out. So there's a, a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, the author of The Scarlet Letter, which I must find, which is called Rappuccini's Daughter, which is about a botanist who has a garden and he, the hero notices he never touches the plants, but his daughter touches the plants, but wherever she walks, the plants die in her footsteps. So she's absorbed some mysterious plant poison in her very being, which kind of chimes with me as a gardener. And then another one, there's a modern one called Mulch by Anne Ripley, which is enough to strike terror into us all. It's about a, a detective who is collecting leaf litter for mulch and going around the streets, as you do, I do, I collect the leaves from our street. Yeah, Yeah. it's great. It's free mulch. Mm. Who's not doing that? Anyway, watch out because this heroine, she's doing that in some particularly deep leaf fall and comes across disembodied um, body parts from a gruesome murder, which sets off the trail. So, you know, be careful what you're doing when you're gathering your leaves. You put me right off now. Well, before we go, I wanted to ask, there are so many ways to consume information nowadays. We have web articles, podcasts, Instagram posts, TikToks, vlogs, TV and so much more. What value is there in buying gardening books? What do we get out of having something physical to leaf through? They're lovely things. A book is a nice thing in the way that a podcast or a blog or whatever is not you've got something you can go back to and I think the other thing about them is even expert gardeners like Guy like Matt Pottage like Arthur learn something new and surprising in a book and you know the the fact that people like that can learn something means that you know that there's there's always scope for learning and I think books are fabulous with just that returning to and pondering on there's always this thing of serendipity. You can read a book on a subject that you think you know quite well, but someone's always either unearthed an interesting fact that um, you hadn't heard before or has a different insight. And I think that's one of the features of books, and you can return to them over and over. And, of course, they sit on your shelves, and I, for one, take a great comfort in having a shelf full of books. In fact, I've got so many books, I really don't know how to move. Um, so there's usually makes moving a, impossible, doesn't it? It does make moving impossible. Anyway, there's a rotation between the charity shop and my bookshelves. That <laughs> well, you can always borrow under. from the library. Yes, well, the I mean, RHS library. I, I like the library. and I'd lost my library ticket during the <gasps> pandemic, and I had to go and get another one the other day. So um, I would recommend browsing in the library. There's loads and loads of books and unlike my shelves they're arranged in some sort of logical order as well (laughs) so yes I'm a great great fan of books and looking ahead what should we keep our eyes out for in 2024 I'm I'm hoping there'll be more and more methods of gardening organically because I think we just need it reinforced more and more that there are alternatives to chemicals so I'm hoping there's more Bob Flower Dew people emerging. Mm. So that would be nice to see. New, a new generation of organic gardeners in, in yes, print. In, in general, yeah, mm. big umbrella. Mm. I think that um, sustainability will become even more important. Every year, and especially this last year, the importance of sustainable use of water, planting for the many trees ahead, avoiding the use of peat, looking after your soil, There's more and more information that's coming through. There's good information rather than sort of um, somewhat made up. 
and I feel there's be opportunities for a much more joined up sustainability books as time goes by. Mm. I think that the changing nature of gardening advice in response to all of those challenges can be really interesting to see how that does change what the kind of you know practical advice gardening books are going to look like are they going to have to be structured differently mm. and are they going to have to be kind of much more conscious of regional that northwest southeast dry and wet divide are we going to have to have sea regional gardening books which would be fun mm. yeah. but also a new category of plants that will cope with very wet yeah, and resilient very well dry plants. at the same I think time that's a big yeah, trend. And i think a lot of research is going on so hitherto we've done our best with limited uh, knowledge in future more and more we'll actually have some uh, an evidence basis to recommend plants so it takes you back to um the value of books what could be better than a book to guide people through these changing times absolutely well thank you all for joining me today you can find links to all the books we discussed in our show notes as well as a link to an article on the rhs website of my top garden books for 2023 that's it for now so from me helen griffin goodbye and thanks for listening I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.